Hi, I'm Bianca Winata Putri, and welcome to Talking Contemporary. Here, we believe in the power of stories to share knowledge, change lives, and the world around us. Talking Contemporary features conversations with artists and creatives from Southeast Asia and beyond, as they share about what it means to make art in this time and the challenges and encounters along the way. The question of what is Southeast Asia is one that has sit with me for many years. As you know, this podcast is centered on sharing stories from creatives across the region. But what does Southeast Asia really mean? And why is it important? These questions has a lot to do with my identity and those around me. I am Indonesian. I was born and raised in Indonesia. And Indonesia is evidently part of Southeast Asia. But I never refer to myself as Southeast Asian, and I noticed that other people from the region almost never refer to themselves as Southeast Asian either, but rather as Vietnamese, Filipino, Thai, Cambodian, and so on. We are not unified by language or culture, and there are countless amounts of ethnicities, languages, dialects, religions being practiced across the region. So what is Southeast Asia, and what makes us Southeast Asian? It is a strange concept, but it is an important one for us to reflect and unpack. And who better to do this than artist, researcher, and philosopher Ho Yun In this episode, we spoke about what sparked Zhu's interest in Southeast Asia, and how this has been a result of investigating his own identity. He was born and now lives and works in Singapore. He works primarily in film, video, and performance, and has recently developed immersive multimedia installation, including virtual reality works. Zhu's practice is centered on the intersections of place, time, history, objects, and myths, particularly in the context of Singapore and Southeast Asia. One of his most renowned works is The Critical Dictionary of Southeast Asia, an online interactive dictionary that embraces chance, encounters, and multiplicity of Southeast Asia. We spoke about tigers, were tigers, ghosts, and how art fits into all of this. This has got to be one of the most mind-blowing conversations I've had so far. So let's begin. Hey, Bianca. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm feeling good today. Um, yeah. Yeah, always good to try to be positive. I know. It feels like end of year, you get super busy and you just kind of want to break. But I'm really glad that you said yes to this invite. You know, we've been catching up a lot this year. I think also a lot of my research is related with your works. Um, but I'm glad that we can sit down and kind of relax with, um, I have a cup of green tea here and just, yeah, chat a little bit about you and your practice. Um, so we might just kick off with, um, you know, tell me a little bit about your story. Well, you know, these kinds of uh, stories of origins, it's uh, always a little bit murky when we try to recall and recall them. So just take whatever I say with a small pinch of salt. But uh, as far as I can remember, actually, I've never had any interest in arts growing up. I mean, I was interested in literature, music and um, films, but not necessarily in the visual arts. So, um, yeah, I think probably my first encounter was with a book. Uh, So writings about modern art rather than the art itself was what kind of got me interested. So I was in the university in Singapore and um, 
in the communication studies program and I was like uh, not really going much to school. And I spent a lot of time in the library instead and I picked up by chance this book by a kind of German Marxist theorist about modernist arts. So the book was Peter Berger's uh, Theory of the Avant-Garde. Oh, and I, yes. Yeah. And actually that book was kind of what got me started, you know. Yeah. Wow, amazing. And um, you mentioned that you've always been interested in kind of music and literature from a young age. So, mm-hmm. you know, what, what happened after, after you picked up that, that book? Um, did you start going to art school or? Yeah. So basically after picking up that book, um, that was the first time I, you know, really uh, sort of encountered figures like uh, the Dadaists, the surrealists, but especially important for me was Marcel Duchamp. You know, so I thought at that time that it was a very easy way to live a life if you were a visual artist like Marcel Duchamp. You don't really even have to produce anything. Mm. You just you just need to select ready mates, you know. And I thought, ah, that yeah. sounds like a you know good way to spend one's time. Mm-hmm. So basically, I dropped out of university in Singapore, and then I went to Melbourne to uh, do a course on art. So you know, Amazing. Melbourne isn't exactly too far out from my biography. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think that, but at the same time, I think my interest in music, literature, and in cinema uh, continued and persisted. And I would say one of the most interesting things for me about doing the visual, the so-called visual arts today is that it is nothing, you know, it, that there are no longer any boundaries or rules in what is the visual arts. So to put it an, in another way, the visual arts can be anything. So your my own interest, like in literature, in cinema, in music, can all be sort of folded into the visual arts, like the visual arts doesn't exclude, you know, any of these other fields. So that remains today for me, like one of the most, uh, you know, interesting things about the visual arts. And that's also kind of like what keeps me um, going back to the visual arts is precisely mm. I can I can make it anything I want it to be. So any of my interests can be... Um, yeah, included in the practice. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Thinking about visual arts in this way, it's almost liberating. It's a field where everything can happen all at once. So you have like kind of like freedom. And I think this is also something for me that has a lot to do with the figure of Marcel Duchamp, whom mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier as the kind of main figure that interested me in the, you know, this first book I read about the visual arts, right? The theory of the avant-garde. So in the in the argument of uh, Berger, like what Duchamp does by choosing ready-mates, such as like the urinal, right? Uh, which was the probably the most famous uh, Duchampian ready-mate. Uh, it was called the, the fountain, but it was basically an upturned urinal. Mm-hmm. You know, so by not producing anything with his hand and just like selecting this ready-made mass-produced object and inserting it into like a context of art, he makes it clear that what makes art art 
it's not the object in itself, but rather the institution, you know, mm, placing yes. this ready-made in a, in a museum transforms it into art. So what makes the object art is actually the institution and the kind of like power behind the institution. So with that move, I think, uh, you know, in a certain sense, art kind of like became nothing mm. and anything at the same time. For me, at yes. least that was the effect. So, so I think since yeah. then, that's how I try to like think of all, all of my art projects with uh, just maximal freedom. Yeah. Can you repeat that again? I think that's so great. And uh, the art is nothing and everything. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, because I think art is nothing, you know, there's no more parameters or rules that defines what art is. And Mm. because of that, you know, because art is nothing, it could also mean to take it in a positive way. It could be anything, like you could make it Mm. into anything. So the possibilities are kind of like, you know, endless. Basically. A for animism, A for aporia, A for archipelago, B for buffalo, G for ghost, G for ghost fighter. No one here calls the tiger by its proper name, unless in a whisper, for speech is spell, and words walk the weave of worlds. So we just listened to an audio clip recording from your online work, Critical Dictionary of Southeast Asia. To set the context for our listeners, this work is an online interactive dictionary that proposed 26 terms, one for each letter of the alphabet, each with a concept, motif, or biography that threads an understanding of Southeast Asia. The dictionary has an algorithm that absorbs and annotates online audiovisual materials available on the internet that endlessly composes new combinations of the 26 terms in a dictionary. I would highly encourage you to access the work via your browser and type in cdosea.org. Zoo, this is an incredible work, and as mentioned before, very generative too. I have this work bookmarked for more than a year now, and I'm still amazed by the potentials this online dictionary has to offer. Could you walk us through how you started this dictionary? Sure, yeah. Um, Well, basically, you know, after studying in Melbourne, (laughs) <laughs> I uh, mm-hmm. came back to Singapore and I made the work which I described earlier called Utama, Every Name in History is I. And uh, researching on that work uh, and, and on the genealogy of the figure Sangnila Utama kind of got me interested in Southeast Asian history, you know, because Sangnila Utama, according to some accounts, he was a prince from Sumatra, you know, and uh, so so to understand the origins of Singapore already, you know, opens, you have to go beyond like national boundaries to, to look at these deeper, longer, older connections within our region, right? But to understand kind of the Sumatran kind of like context, 
um, also plugs the research into a different geographical zone, which is, I would say, the Indian um, Indic kind of like culture, you know. So a lot of these early uh, formative influences in like kind of like, I guess, the Sumatran world in the 13th, 14th century, you know, um, a lot of the kind of cultural influence comes from India, right? So I think that was kind of like what really got me interested in thinking about Southeast Asia. So anyway, I enrolled in the Southeast Asian studies mm-hmm. to, do, to do my master's. And one of the first questions you would have um, that I I received when I was doing my master's in Southeast Asian studies was basically like the most basic question, which is what is Southeast Asia, you know? And uh, you, I found that there was no possible way to really answer that. Yeah. Because Southeast Asia is kind of a strange construction. Like this term for example, didn't come from within the region, you know, like people mm. from within Southeast Asia never ever thought of themselves as like, hey, hey you know, we are like Southeast Asians, right? Yeah, even exactly. today, Even today, people are very skeptical mm-hmm. about it. Like sometimes you talk to people about like Southeast Asia, like, you know, and they would say like, ah, you know, like for example, like my some Filipino friends or colleagues would be like, yeah, the Philippines is not part of Southeast Asia. It doesn't mean like anything to us this term. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can even tell by like, you know, I don't, a lot of Southeast Asians don't call themselves Southeast Asian. They're like, well, I'm Filipino. I'm yeah. Vietnamese. I'm Indonesian. Like I very rarely hear I think I've only heard it once or twice in my life where someone, I'm Southeast Asian, you know? Sure. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. I feel like there's that kind of disconnect between being part of the region or the consciousness of being in the region because it was imposed by, it was it, it was a term imposed to the region rather than from within. Yeah, exactly. I think you summed it up very well. I mean, the origins of the term Southeast Asia one could track it to some uh, occasional kind of like writings that came out like in the 19th century, um, sometimes from a scholarly colonial uh, context, right? Mm. So always written by kind of colonial scholars or used by colonial scholars or colonial administrators. So my research process was basically me... um, kind of like collecting ideas and thoughts and anecdotes and stories and concepts about how Southeast Asia can be reimagined or rethought, you know, how, you know, if this existing model of Southeast Asia that we have that comes out of ASEAN and all these like kind of like, you know, mainstream political kind of like, you know, discourses, we can't trust it completely. What if we can't do that, then what other kind of possible concepts or models can we produce out of Southeast Asia? Mm. You know, so in a certain sense, I would say that is the the starting point of my project. Like the, the question of what is Southeast Asia doesn't for me lead to an answer. I have no answer what it is. But what I do yeah. have are like multiple possible models and propositions mm of how we can rethink or reimagine, uh, you know, a new and different type of Southeast 
Asia, right? So that's kind of the exercise, I suppose. Yeah. And and so why the dictionary as a format? I'm very curious because I feel like dictionary yeah. is often associated with, you know, language, national language in particular, whereas I think you're taking on the region and the format after dictionary changes in a sense because of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear why you chose a dictionary format. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, like dictionaries have the, they immediately evoke like authority through like yes. precise definition, right? So there's yeah. something kind of authoritative um, about dictionaries. And uh, so rather than to avoid that, I decided to take that on, but at the same time to do something strange and I would say almost kind of like slightly perverse like with, with it. So instead of just being a dictionary, you know, my dictionary is a critical dictionary. So it's mm. uh, prephrased with like, you know, critic, the word critical, right? right? And to be critical about something means that you already have a position, you know, you are not claiming to be objective. Like most dictionaries claim to be objective, like, like an objective uh, definition of like certain words, right? But if you have a critical dictionary, it already means that you are partial, you come from a position, you know. So that was kind of the, yeah, so that was, uh, mm. so I guess my, my main intention in taking on the dictionary is to, uh, is to adopt this frame, authoritative frame, but to kind of like subvert it in a certain sense from the inside, you know. Um, so... Yeah, as you were saying, uh, you know, dictionaries seem to be, you know, very closely linked to like language, like the stability of language and definitions, right? So this is one main reason why my dictionary um, is in a sense fueled by an algorithmic system. Mm. So uh, a set of algorithms is constantly recomposing my dictionary. And my dictionary is a kind of audio visual dictionary it's made up of like um footage gleaned or appropriated or repurposed from the internet from like youtube vimeo um illegal torrent websites for example yeah incredible and uh, it it kind of remixes all these uh, audiovisual materials that are available online uh according to the concepts of the 26 terms that I assembled 26 terms because there are 26 letters in the in the English slash Latin uh, alphabet, mm. and it also recombines it with uh, different voiceovers. So the dictionary becomes something that is like kind of continuously changing, and that again is kind of the opposite of what we think of as a kind of standard dictionary because the standard dictionary is meant to provide like a solid fixed definition right but whereas my dictionary is something that continuously morphs and changes in time you know but having said that i want to mention one last thing which is that actually i would say our kind of typical understanding of what is a dictionary as something solid based you know something very solid and unchanging is itself itself needs to be kind of like questioned you know, because a dictionary is actually uh, something that's continuously evolving, you know. So 
there's like, for example, a team of people constantly working on the Oxford Dictionary, which constantly has like new additions because there's always new English words that are being produced day to day, you know. So, for yeah. example, in our age of social media, there are many new kinds of like, you know, English uh, terms oh, yeah. that are yeah. produced. And this enters into the dictionary like all the time. So actually, the dictionary in itself is an entity which continuously changes and evolves. But at the same time, it's strange that, you know, it takes on this like kind of like aura or something timeless and something authoritative and fixed, right? So I would say that's a, that's a kind of paradox like inherent within the, the construction of a dictionary itself, you know. So I guess my critical dictionary, you know, in a certain sense, like kind of point points towards this already existing paradox, like within the dictionary. Yeah, I also think the 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 idea of dictionaries being objective, right? Like it's there to state what words mean. Um, that's also really fascinating because it's never really truly objective. Like different dictionaries, um, even though it maybe it's attached to national languages or or whatever it, it does it's not always objective like from whose lens who's writing this right who's who's making this dictionary um and yeah i think that the fact that the critical dictionary of southeast asia is from your lens and you're kind of you're not trying to be objective really you're not trying to like g for ghosts and this is what ghosts mean but in fact you're really contextualizing it and complicating it a little bit and allowing people to kind of make their own definitions of what ghosts or um, were tigers or tigers, like what that means. Um, so I think this kind of false idea of an objective dictionary is also being challenged by your work. Yeah, thank you. That's a you know, very good uh, sort of summary of like uh, my intentions. Do you see this dictionary changing in the future? Like, are you planning to add or replace some of the terms? I mean, that I would say the dictionary, there are two types, at least two levels of like changes we can think about when it, come, when it comes to the dictionary. I mean, first of all, the dictionary in itself, as you have already mentioned, is already constantly um, changing. You know? mm. The amount of like uh, footage we have in the archives uh, of the dictionary is immense. So even on based on the existing archives that is that are plugged into it, it's I would say capable of uh, kind of constant change, you know, um, for quite a long time, you know. But then there's a second level of change, which is changing like the structure of the dictionary itself, mm. like introducing new terms, and uh, yeah, I, and I would say certainly I think. Uh, I'm sure there will be a time when I feel like it, it needs to be updated. And uh, con- certainly, I think, you know, working in digital media enables this kind of like process of constant updating. It's a little bit different from like if you made a painting or sculpture, you know, it's a little bit hard to update a sculpture you made 10 years yeah. ago. The museums who bought the sculpture probably wouldn't be happy if you go into their conservation room and like start messing around with the sculpture yeah. that they paid for 10 years ago. But with uh, digital media, I would say that change, transformation, or just this, 
you know, habit of like updates, right? Like updating your OS systems, you know, it's kind of like inherent to, to digital media. So I would say digital media in a certain sense, it's, uh, it's time-based media, you know, it, it, and being time-based to me also always means uh, kind of capacity to change, you know, which is also to say, just to kind of push this line of thought a little bit, like time is change, like to exist mm. in time is already to change, right? It's, it's, to, it's to become, you know, if you live in time, you know. So I guess this kind of ties up a few of the strengths of like thoughts we were talking about like yeah. earlier about, you know, time and like time-based media, uh, images, uh, metamorphosis. Mm. so yeah so you know back to your question now i think i would certainly uh like to um uh, rethink the dictionary at some point but um you know when i first started working on the dictionary i had no idea what the terms were going to be Mm. Um, and probably i spent a long time in the project kind of figuring out what exactly is the project you know, so very often I start on a project without knowing like what it is supposed to be. And actually, I would even say that if I knew what the project was going to be before I started it, there would be no point for me to start it. Because if you already know how something is going to end up, like for me, it just means you don't really have to do it anymore. You know, it's already exists even yeah. in your mind, as a yeah. complete work, right? So very often for me, starting a project is not to complete an existing blueprint. Rather, starting a project is to discover the blueprints mm. in time, you know, as you go along. Yeah. So is that also your hopes for the dictionary? Because I feel like that's so true. When you hop onto the dictionary, like for me, it was chance encounter, I I didn't, when I started my research on contemporary Southeast Asian art, I had no idea the dictionary existed. So it was chance encounter, you know, links after links after things that are mentioned in a reading. I read something, oh, this is mentioned. So I hop on it. And then the chance encounters of seeing the same image is also, or not seeing the same image, but I mean like just the algorithm and seeing the many videos and images and visuals. I think, as you said, chance encounters, transformation and change, they're all embedded in that work. Like, is that also your hopes with the dictionary that people also have these encounters? Yeah, for sure. You know, so what the dictionary does in a, at a certain level is that using these uh, algorithms, it recombines images with sounds um, in new ways or ways that are beyond like what I would have been able to do if I were editing these uh, materials myself. Mm. So it's constantly testing new possibilities. That's actually what the algorithms do. It's like a mechanized system to constantly test out new combinations, right? So it, it becomes in a certain sense oracular in that way because it's testing out all the future possible permutations, of uh, combinations within this like set of materials. So, but, you know, what I want to 
think a little bit about is what exactly is chance, right? Like, you know, there is, you know, it's not something predetermined, you know. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, for me, chance, I think of chance as a kind of like opening to the outside, you know, and I would say the outside with like a capital O, you know, it's like the outside, right? Yeah. The true outside, which is something beyond what we can imagine, um, you know, the outside could be a few, could be the future sometimes is the outside, but it has to be a future which was kind of not predetermined by blueprints from the past, but truly a kind of rupture, you know. So sometimes, you know, we could also think of this outside like a crack in the wall, and that's kind of where the light from the outside comes in or it's like the wind you know air Mm -hmm. kind of goes through these cracks right so for me chance you know it's a kind of a system that one builds in order to increase one's um, chances of encountering the outside you know so Mm -hmm. so these kind of chance operations are really uh, strategies to 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 make oneself more receptive or increase the chances of being uh, able to receive this force from the outside because the outside is a force and at its best and sometimes it's kind of a non-human force like from the outside mm. you know um, but kind of thinking about the dictionary, like, you know, away from these kind of questions of chance and the outside, I would also say that for me, you know, Southeast Asia is also a region that is always open to the outside in a different sense of, like, thinking of the region, you know, which is, um, you know, Southeast Asia, you know, it's a region that is not really a region at the same time because it's not unified by a religion, a language, or a political system, you know. Yeah, so that's right. So what makes Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, that's kind of like part of the paradox. But that's also something really beautiful to me, that it's not something which is essentialized, you know. It's not like Southeast Asia, to be Southeast Asia means that you have to be of a certain ethnicity or skin color or you must speak one specific language, it doesn't essentialize or reduce to these types of like criteria, but rather it's something open, you know, and I would say it's something that's like perpetually open to the outside because I would think like there is a kind of traditional hospitality to Southeast Asian cultures, which is that it, kind of welcomes the outside and sometimes it's hospitality to outside forces gets abused and used as it was during the colonial period you know but there was always a openness to like a kind of exchange of blood of dna of language of ideas like within you know many matrixes of like culture at certain moments in Southeast Asian history, right? You know, which is always this kind of like exchange going on. So this like kind of opening to the outside, you know, enriches the so-called inside, you know, and it also frees us from this reductive 
essentialized kind of identitarian politics, which unfortunately has a certain kind of resurgence in our world at the moment. Yeah. You know, so there's something about Southeast Asia that's like beautiful to me because it's non-essentialized. You know, and it's also interesting to think like if it's non-essentialized, like what does identity really mean? Like you know, so identity for mm. me is a kind mm. of a proposition or model or rendering that it's like produced, but it has no claims to any kind of like essential essentialism. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I think you described that really beautifully. <laughs> and, you know, Southeast Asia is very complex and sometimes I just want to like pull my hair out just doing this research, you know. But every time you speak about Southeast Asia, you're very articulate about it, but there's also this idea of like surrendering to the fact that it's not one thing, that it's not essential or unified. Um, and embracing that quality, I think that's so... Yeah, that, that's incredibly beautiful and so inspiring. Zoo, we could speak for hours and would only just be scratching the surface. I still have a million things I'd like to discuss with you, but it's probably time to close the conversation. Um, and as usual, I would always close with some rapid fire questions. So first up, how did you start your day today? Like every day with a cup of coffee. You know, mm-hmm. it, yep. usually the coffee is the last thing I think about at the end of every day so like the thought of having coffee the next day is a bit of uh, a, yes. yeah, encouragement for me to wake up for the next day I love that that's also me I'm like in the morning I'm like I can't wait for my cup of coffee like yeah. I have to get to that yeah um, what is your you know as a filmmaker and um, you know you work a lot with visuals and image making filmmaking um what is your favorite film yeah that's a really tough one you know yeah just because it's <laughs> like i have too many but if i just had to like think of one at the moment i might say it's a film called Teorama, which is italian mm-hmm. for the theorem in uh, and it's by uh, the italian poet filmmaker uh, called Pier Paolo Pasolini. Yep. So uh, wow. he didn't make that many films. And um, yeah, for me, Teorama is kind of a, it's quite a perfect film in terms of like its structure. It's the structure of the film is as clear as a metic, mathematical theorem. And uh, at the same time, I would say a lot of, probably a lot of my own kind of ideological positions came out of my very, very early, relatively early engagement with this particular Mm. film. Yeah. All right. That's on my list. Do you know if I can catch it on Netflix? Probably not. (laughs) Probably not on Netflix. Netflix, I'm sure you can find it online. Yeah. I'll have to dig through it, but that sounds, that sounds incredible. Um, um, And what are you feeling hopeful for? the future yeah i think f- i would say in the last decade you know the, the future has only been populated by catastrophic like images you know like yeah how we imagine the futures in the last decade it's it's inevitably tied into like images of like mass extinction or like climate change you know or like apocalyptic thoughts you know, so I think, uh, so I, 
I like your question very much because you talk about feeling hopeful, you know. So I think the first thing we need to think about is like somehow we need to like free our mind from this like apocalyptic thoughts, you know. I mean, they are they are part of reality, and of course we have to stay with this trouble and to engage with it. But it's sometimes. Um, yeah, sometimes I think it's not the most productive to be like kind of like absorbed into these, right? So one yeah. is it's important also to like be able to find hope. And I would say like for me, hope is something close to what I described earlier as the open with a capital O, mm. like the, the future as still something not yet determined. And because it's not yet determined, I would say hope springs eternal. Mm. Oh my God, that's really beautiful and very philosophical. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> um, and this is a last question, and but definitely not least, what does art mean to you? Yeah, I would say art means nothing to me. And because it is nothing, it could also potentially be anything. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love how we circle around to the very beginning. But yeah, thank you so much. I really loved having you in the show and I'm excited to see the work on time. It will be great. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Wow, there is a lot to take in from that conversation. But what was most profound for me was Zhu's point about embracing the complexity and messiness of Southeast Asia, and with that also our identity. Some of you might think, how is this at all relevant to my life or being? The truth is, we are all connected through time and history. Our existence in this planet transcends borders and resists a single definition. And it's about time that we embrace our shared histories, identities, and develop a stronger bond with one another as we move into the future. You can find out more about Zunyan and the Critical Dictionary online via the website cdosea.org. You can also find out more about the artist and his projects on Talking Contemporary's Instagram at talking.contemporary and on our website talkingcontemporary.com. If you have an artist or creative you'd like to hear from in our future episodes, please send an email to hello at talkingcontemporary.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one.